You're listening to The Jazz Session with Jason Crane. Since 2007, the original jazz interview podcast. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. This is episode 616 for May 17th, 2023. On this episode, vocalist and former host of this show, Nikki Schreira. Members of the Jazz Session also get This I Dig of You, the Patreon bonus show, on which I ask the guest from the main show to talk about something non-musical that is bringing them joy. You can hear that bonus episode by becoming a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join. You'll also get early access to every episode of the show. You'll get occasional behind-the-scenes info and other bonus episodes. Plus, for every episode, I choose one Patreon supporter to name as the sponsor of the episode. This time around, it's Chandra Crouch. Thanks so much. Nikki Schreira's new album is called Nowhere Girl. Here's the opening song. Welcome to the jazz session. Hi, Jason. Thank you for having me. I feel like they should cue up that song from Annie. Together again. <laughs> it's so great to have you. Uh, for anybody who's just listening to this show for the very first time right now, I guess, first of all, welcome. And second of all, Nikki used to be the host. Uh, I was the host and then Nikki was the host. Now I'm the host again. And she's a guest and she's been a guest before, too. You can find that in the archives. And we're here today to talk about the new record, Nowhere Girl. And I have to say, uh, and I'm not just saying this because we've known each other for a long time, I love this record, Nikki. I think it is absolutely fantastic. Jason, thank you so much. I hadn't heard from you since I sent you the files, so I actually wasn't sure if you'd listen to it. But you know me, I'm always up for a chat. And uh, <laughs> Now, let me tell you how to do your job, Jason. Yes, so, thank uh, you. So I'm actually absolutely thrilled to hear that that means a great deal to me and uh damn you for waiting until we're on air she says in air quotes um to give me that feedback because i did think i was like maybe jason doesn't like it but he committed to having me come on the show so well you do know me well enough to know that if i have if i had listened to this album and thought oh my god then uh yeah something would have come up tonight that's for it, it that's, would have been hard to sure. schedule this <laughs> yeah I'm exactly you would i'm not have sure. been unavailable for the rest of 2023 yeah it's weird i just all of a sudden i'm booked uh no it's it's really fabulous and i want to talk about some of the reasons i that i think it's fabulous as we go through but i just wanted to start with the title because one of the things you and i have in common is that we have many times in our lives not just moved which 
a lot of people move, but we have kind of taken our entire lives, moved them somewhere else, not necessarily more convenient, oftentimes where we didn't necessarily know a lot of people, and then just started again or like continued along the path. And I I think that experience is a little less common for people, but the idea behind it seems to suffuse not only uh, the the song, but also the the entire album. There's just a that feeling that goes through it. So I'm just I'm curious to hear anything you have to say, kind of on that idea of relocation and reinvention as it applies to your your music and this album in particular. Well, I think that moving is a privilege getting to live in a different city or a different state or a different country is an immense luxury. That said, it's also incredible, incredibly difficult. And as, as you know, we don't always move because we want to. And so that unearths a whole heap of feelings and also just administrative headaches. Like it's really, it's not the romantic notion that we often think or hope that it will be. So that said, I wrote the title track of this album when I was in graduate school. So I had just moved to study. I'd moved from South Africa to New York. And if you told me now over 10 years ago that I would then be moving, not for school reasons, but, you know, relocating, moving home, moving back to the city of my birth, yada, yada, yada. I um, probably would have gone and taken a very long nap because it would have sounded exhausting. And now that I'm on the other side of it, it has been absolutely exhausting. (laughs) So it's kind of strange that that song is leading the pack for this album given that I didn't know what a nowhere girl I would become. I mean, I was fresh into graduate school. New York was wonderful, but incredibly overwhelming. I felt very other. I didn't grow up in the States. I didn't do my undergraduate degree in the States. So I was coming to a music conservatory. I was at the Manhattan School of Music and was all at once really engaged, really excited to be there, enthusiastic, curious, all those good things. But I was also having... a a massive wobble and spending many a night in my dorm room feeling old. I mean, (laughs) I was like early twenties. Now I'm 80. So let's talk about what being old is, but (laughs) but, but feeling older and feeling like I didn't know what my musical shtick was or was going to be or was supposed to be. And I felt like maybe I should have had it figured out already because I was surrounded by a lot of precocious incredibly talented, prodigious uh, musicians who they had it and they ran with it. Now, it's kind of funny to look back on it and say that now, because one of the people who was an undergraduate when I was a graduate student was Kate Davis, who's done a complete 360 and come out, uh, emerged as this absolutely phenomenal kind of indie alt singer, songwriter, pop singer. Uh, So it's it is funny because she seemed so fully formed at the time as this sort of very trad singer slash bassist and sounding of a of a time and an era. So I suppose it goes to show that we never really know what's what's happening and what's potting for other people. But I had this sort of crisis of identity, and I wrote Nowhere Girl, and I mean over ten years later, and it really is still relevant. 
Uh, and I suppose that's how it's supposed to be for all of us, actually, whether or not we move homes or stay in one place, we will change and that will inevitably have us hit speed bumps. Do you find that you sing the song differently now, or at least are in a different emotional place when you sing it than you were then with so much more, you know, under your belt, so to speak? I think I'm less emotionally sort of driven now when I sing it. I think I'm less emotionally driven when I sing most things. I think I've leaned into the fact that I know that I need to emote when I'm singing, but at the same time, I also kind of know where my boundaries are or my limits are in terms of not over-emoting so that I go into this place where actually it's not very authentic. So there is a little bit of, you know, sit back with a cigarette. Not that I smoke, but to that, oh, you know, let me tell you about a sweetheart. Um, I'm a little, I'm, I'm jaded and I'm cynical, Jason, and I've always been that to a degree, but never more so than now. I am hopeful and optimistic, sure. But I think when I sing Nowhere Girl Now, I feel like I'm in a better portion of the journey of feeling uncomfortable and feeling stretched. I think that when I was in my early 20s and I felt uncomfortable and stretched and sort of untethered, I was slightly more hysterical. I'm less hysterical now. But just don't ask don't ask my mother if you know she agrees with that summary. <laughs> For those times when you were traveling, writing postcards on the go. I keep company with yearning Pretend that I don't miss you so It's a quiet existence While you drink booze for free And I keep hoping you'll return And write some songs with me different town each day You've barely taken off your boots and then you've gone away I bite my tongue so sorely to silence any plea that you'll take time off from the gig and write some songs with me You know, it's interesting that you that you say that about kind of the emotional place you're in as a singer. I, of course, when you listen to a record, you bring you bring your own, wherever you are in your own life to it. And that was certainly true uh, as I've been listening to this record since you sent it to me. But um, I find this record to have a real thread of melancholy running through it. And mm-hmm. first of all, is A, not a criticism, and B, is, I think, uh, attractive in music a lot of the time. I mean, I Something about this work as a whole, and I also, again, I just say, I, I know that I'm to some degree, I'm putting my own filter on this, but something about this album as a whole, it just, it feels very poignant to me. And I think that's one of the things that drew me into it. I mean, there's a lot to talk about, about how it sounds and the genres it bends and all of those things. And we can talk about those things, but just that thread, I mean, it just feels, yeah, it just feels really kind of exposed and melancholy. And I, I was really affected by it emotionally. I expected I would like it musically because I'm a fan of yours, but I was really affected by it emotionally. I, I don't know uh, if that resonates with how you felt making it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm I'm really thrilled to get that kind of reaction, um, Jason. 
uh, firstly, the, the turn of phrase that you used where you said you were emotionally affected by it, I think that is the goal. You can never control whether that emotion will be one of melancholy or happiness or sadness, but the desire to have somebody listen to something that you've made or the desire to have somebody look at a piece of art that you've created and to feel something, to feel an emotion, that is the goal. And I've always said I'd I'd rather have somebody hate something that I've done than feel indifferent to it because then it has stirred up no emotion at all. And so I'm thrilled that it speaks to you and I'm thrilled that you can put your own filter on it and have it apply to whatever mood you're in or whatever you've done or been through. That's that's really a really lovely piece of praise. So thank you. I suppose I am a bit of a melancholy person. I mean, I said I'm a cynic. I like slow songs. I like sad songs. Sometimes I like happy songs. Sometimes I want to listen to, I guess, I don't know, Johnny Clegg and feel connected to South Africa in that way. Or I want, I I don't know. I mean, I was going to, I was thinking about what I could listen to, to feel connected to my British roots, but it's mostly melancholy folk music, truth be told. I, I like feeling sad. I was actually talking to somebody just the other day about watching award shows and loving watching people give acceptance speeches for awards and crying and feeling it's a cathartic cry. And I absolutely love it. I mean, (laughs) I'm not that interested in watching the Oscars because I want to see what they're wearing and I want to, you know, admire a a new set of cheekbones and, you know, fresh forehead. I want to watch acceptance speech speeches and even about categories I don't care about. I get so excited for these people and I start crying and then I feel so good afterwards. So (laughs) I suppose I, I do lean into that aspect of what, yeah, I, wanting to be reflective. I think it sure. might be why I love film scores so much. It's also, I've loved ballads and I know there have been previous criticisms of certainly the album that I released 10 years ago before Nowhere Girl Space and Time. Somebody said to me, yeah, it's fine, There, are, but you just don't have enough variety in, in Tempe. There are too many slow songs. And I was like, eh, fair enough. But I still stood by my choice because I love a ballad. You know, and I love a, a piano voice duo, like because it's going to make you kind of lean in, sure, and reflect and feel. So, yeah, I, I yeah, I would not disagree with you that there is melancholy running throughout this. And uh, I always feel it's important to say when I have painted with a broad brush about the album that we're talking about, and of course, people are going to be hearing this album during our conversation, which always helps. But uh, every, everyone should listen to it and tell their own story. Um, and it's not all of a piece in terms of its mood either. The, the album has a really broad range of emotion. Uh, just sometimes I think you, you, the listener naturally latch onto a thread, but I, I don't want to, I don't want to paint it as a kind of monochromatic thing. Um, I want to talk more about the, the kind of nature of the album, but um, before we get too much further, can we talk about the folks who are on it? Because I think the, the band really serves this music so well and the and the people who are who are playing on it again i appreciate that and i'm going to tell them because that's that's all them the people on this album are a group of mostly bar one canadian musicians many of whom i met 
just before the pandemic, which is when I had just moved to Toronto, Canada, and I wanted to find people to play with, but I wanted to find people who were like-minded. I was moving to Toronto as a much older person. To be quite frank, Jason, I just didn't have time for having jam sessions with people that I was never going to really carve out working relationships with. And so I sort of did my research. I was looking for a pianist to play duo repertoire with in the same vein as John Taylor and Norma Winston. I asked around. I got some very strange responses from people saying, you could ask this person, but you'd have to pay them. I was like, "Mm, that's not really, that's not a jazz community sort of forward mentality. Um, and I knew Ernesto Servini, the drummer, because I'm very, very good friends, as you are too, with his sister, Amy Servini. And I saw, I bumped into Ernesto and he said, I saw that you put online, you were looking for a pianist. You know, you could ask this guy, Chris Donnelly. I don't know if he'll do it, but there's no harm in asking. So I said, why wouldn't he do it? if you think that he likes this kind of music and this kind of working uh, approach. And Ernesto said, Chris generally doesn't like to play with people. Or Chris says, no, you know, he just doesn't (laughs) feel like it. I thought, all right, well, my father can be a bit of a curmudgeon, so it's all right, put me in. So I, I messaged Chris and he said, yeah, sure. And we were scheduled to have a session and then the pandemic hit and we were at home for obviously what turned out to be, I mean, how many years. But I said to him, oh, well, there goes our session, I suppose. I'll check in with you when we're all allowed to hang out again. And he said, no, no, let's start throwing some ideas back and forth virtually. So our initial working interactions were virtual. I'd send him lyrics, he'd send music, or I'd send a melody, he'd send an accompaniment, all this sort of thing. And we then started rehearsing together every week for this like weird window when we were allowed out of our houses. And so that's how my relationship with Chris Donnelly, who's the pianist on this album, was forged. And then Dan Fortin, Ernesto and Chris have a trio, a piano trio called Myriad Three, who sadly they very seldom play together. And they're really astonishing, Jason. I think you'd really, really enjoy their music. Um, So it felt a bit like a no-brainer saying, well, all three of you, do you want to record this album with me? By no means are you merely a rhythm section for a singer, but they'd never recorded with a singer as Myriad Three. And again, having listened to their music, it I just felt like they might be into this. It's very lean. This, these are songs. And I've always felt very bad saying to somebody, okay, but you only have 20 bars to improvise or or eight bars, you know, say everything. And amazingly, or not amazingly, because they were clearly the right people for the project, they all loved that aspect of making this record. They loved the parameters. And so it means that I was very, very fortunate to have basically chosen the right people for this specific project. So that they are the rhythm section players. And then Tara Davidson is a really superb saxophonist. And I'd heard her improvising at a York University concert where Dave Douglas, the trumpeter, was artist in residence. And 
part of what I remember so clearly, aside from hearing Tara improvise and thinking, wow, she is a consummate storyteller through improvising, which I think is the goal and is incredibly hard to do and to accomplish. I was watching Dave Douglas watching her when she was improvising and seeing this sense of appreciation and respect and awe on his face. And I didn't think, well, if it's good enough for Dave, it's good enough for me. But that was such, that, that visual was kind of imprinted on my mind because I felt that way hearing her, but then it was kind of just reinforced by seeing the way he was interacting with her and seeing the way that, frankly, all the the musicians in in the Canadian jazz scene uh, interact with her and they, they, you know, ask her to work with them. And she's just wonderful, Jason, and a lovely person. So she's the guest saxophonist on several of these tunes on alto and soprano. And, and I'm just going to, if you don't mind, yeah. I'm going to just step in for a second, just to yes. say, first of all, to say that the soprano saxophone and your particular musical sensibilities are an absolutely perfect marriage. She plays both alto and soprano on this, but she has some moments on here where, I mean, she just kind of takes your breath away. And and the the world that you set up for that to happen in, because of the way the music is written and arranged... It just there's so much space in this music that if you have an someone who whose inclination is to soar, you've created this beautiful landscape for that person to soar above, and that makes that flight so much more beautiful. And there are just some moments on here where I mean, her her sound is arresting. It's really it's really wonderful. I was introduced to her. Uh, Ernesto was on the show not too long ago talking about his most recent record, Joy, oh. and uh, I was introduced to her around that time and. Yeah, she's she's pretty astonishing. A free man in Paris She wrote and sang of whimsically A place for hide and seek For magical illusions That's a great record. Sorry, this is not Ernesto's interview, but that album, Joy, I think it's some of his best writing. I agree. Uh, and again, you know, I think if people are not familiar with Canadian jazz musicians, who's out there, who's playing and living in, we're working in Canada, um, Joy is actually a great album to use as an introduction. And Tara's on that and Ernesto's on it. Uh, and Dan is playing bass on it, Dan Fortin. I'm so delighted to hear you say that, Jason, because again, I mean, obviously I went in hoping this would work, but to, for you to say that there is the space and if somebody wants to take off, they can, that's, it's kind of, 
I'm kind of relieved to hear it because again, <laughs> you know, she can take off, but she only has 20 bars to do it. You know, and, and for some people that's not their jam. And I appreciate that. And for some people it's very like anti-jazz because you can't stretch out. But what is very interesting, what I learned when I was gifted the opportunity to host and produce your show for a year is that by listening to people, well, by interviewing people like Theo Blackman was one, um, Shai Maestro is another, the idea that recording an album is very different to a live performance and that stuff that would work in a live gig may not land in an album. And one of the things that Theo kind of alluded to that really stuck with me is that open solos, I mean, there's a time and a place for a vocal album, or at least, I mean, I should probably just not speak for anyone else, but for my kind of vocal album or the kind of vocal album that I like to listen to, it's not the time or the place to have 50 choruses of an instrumental solo. I'm not saying it couldn't work. I'm happy to stand corrected. But it's been very interesting maybe growing up and thinking about what this context, the recording studio album context looks like for me or what I would like it to look like if I was purchasing somebody else's record. But yeah, Tara is um, great. Tara makes this album jazz to me. I don't know if, if you would agree with that. And I think that's just how it happened. I mean, Chris does. I mean, Chris Donnelly also takes some absolutely beautiful solos and there's some crunchy stuff in there and it, it resolves in a smart and very musical way. Uh, but Tara, yeah, her solos for me, let me sit back and say, yeah, this is a jazz record. And people might take me to task on that and say, well, she had to do it in 20 bars. But it, it, for me, she's she's the most jazzy thing about it. And in fact, I was discussing that with Lila Bialy, who takes a turn as a guest vocalist on this album. And I know you know Lila as well. And she's just one of the warmest, most generous people that is out there. Incredibly talented as a singer and, I mean, a musician, as a pianist, as a, as a songwriter. And one of the few Canadians that I knew when I moved here. And in fact, we met in New York. She hadn't yet moved back to Canada so it was a little serendipitous reconnecting with her and becoming really good friends with her. And I always say to people, you know, may they, may everyone be so lucky as to have a Lila in their corner, you know, in uh, cheering them on. And she agreed to come and duet on an Anna McGarrigal tune. So she's a guest vocalist. And then the last guest player is a guitarist who's originally from Mozambique, but we studied at the University of Cape Town together. And his name is Julio Sigauk. And the tune that he guests on had a little bit of a kind of windy way to becoming what it is on the album. And he's a massive part of basically getting it over the finish line so that Oded Levary, who produced this album, so that Oded and I could say, ah, okay, it works now. Okay, thank you. Great. We found the sort of missing, the, the missing piece. And that was Julio.
Let's take a quick break from the interview so I can remind you that you can support what I do and help keep the archives freely available for everyone by becoming a member for $5 a month. You'll get a bonus episode with every regular episode, plus early access to every show, additional bonus stuff, and other behind-the-scenes updates. You can become a member today at thejazzsession.com slash join. I write press releases and artist bios and liner notes for musicians. I've done that for many of the folks you've heard on this show and for others, too. You can see samples of my work at cranewrites.com. That's crane, W-R-I-T-E-S dot com. I'd love to write for you, so check out the samples. You'll find contact info there and get in touch. Now back to the episode. So different from their elders Generation brightly colored Rainbow arching high Dust dances where they shuffle Feet of bear shouts and muffled True elation for a newer day The future wide Oh my love Oh my land So I want to talk about two particular uh, tracks on this record. And uh, I did the same thing with this record that I always do, which is I didn't look at what was on it or anything. I just started it playing. And um, so it got to Father. And that immediately reminded me, uh, because I had come across this uh, not too long ago, years ago, you sent me a video of you singing. Uh, I think maybe it was at the Katano. I can't quite remember. Uh what I imagine it maybe was an early version uh, or, or and you know, an early, close to the genesis of this song. And I just came across that video not too long ago when I was going through a hard drive of jazz performances that I was trying to find a particular thing. And I thought, oh, what's this? And it was that. And uh, so it was lovely, lovely to hear that. It's it's such a fabulous piece of music. And again, I think one of the cool things about getting to hear things over time and getting to hear things in different settings is that in a lot of ways, this album, this album to me feels like someone who has really discovered exactly who they are. And I think that comes across in so many performances on this record. Um, And, you know, it's been 10 years since, uh, you released a record in 10 years is a lot of time to figure things out, but not everybody does in 10 or any number of years. But that, that song was one of, because I had heard it before that song was a moment where I could like say, Oh yeah. Like if I do an AB test on this, on this song, the B is like a whole, it's a whole other beast. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm so impressed. I, I All I'm doing is complimenting this album. I don't even know if I've actually asked, <laughs> I'm not sure I've gotten to the end of a sentence that has a question mark at the end of it yet. I, all I have to say is how much I love this record. And I just hope that you'll start talking when I stop because I haven't, I don't think I've even asked you a question yet. And but I'm anyway. just sitting here plotting. Well, the funny thing is, Jason, if people had reservations about me coming on the show because they're like, yeah, but didn't she host that show? So isn't that a bit like <laughs> weird? And it's not nepotism, but it's like podcastism or something. Um, so if they had rev- reservations before, now they'll really be like, what the beep is she doing on this show? Because he's just complimenting it. You know, uh, no, I'm so thrilled. You know, it's funny though, Jason, because we've known each other for so long. And so you've 
you've listened to, I mean, music of mine recorded, you know, live. Uh, I have, have stood been, I on know. a street corner while you sang to me before. Like that's, we've known what each other. What did I sing? Blackbird or Yes, something. we've known each other long enough. <laughs> And in enough situations that I have literally stood on a New York street corner. Did you worry I was going to fixate? The Bobby McFerrin. Black, my, sister, my sister once said to me, I was like, you know what? Now I'm going to go on to his A, B. She's like, you know, just worry you're going to pass out every time you sing those. I was like, what? So it's not like immensely impressive. She's like, oh. um, that's so funny. Oh my gosh. That's so funny. Yeah. yeah but so, I mean, look, you've, yes. Okay. So we obviously have a, uh, a level of familiarity with each other, but in some ways you are the perfect person to pass criticism or analysis on this album because your point of reference, as you pointed out with that, it would have been an earlier, I think it was a performance. Was it with Gerald Clayton? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that, yeah, you, you're the perfect person. You're the person I want to like basically say, could you do an AB? Tell me, have I gotten better? Or have I gotten worse? Um, you know, should I really now quit? I'm not ahead. I'm like way behind. But that father and there's another tune on the album, Traveler, have actually been recorded before because there was an EP that I made Yeah. in between my 2013 sophomore album and this album. Father and Traveler were on that EP. And that EP is a trio EP because it was with Fabian Elmazan on piano and Desmond White on bass. So I felt justified in re-recording it because now both those tunes have the addition of drums on them. But also those tunes are very folky and Traveler is through composed. It really is debatable whether or not that is a jazz tune at all. And I actually needed to have another go at them to honor the fact that their folkiness meant I could just back off a whole bunch, no improvising from me, minimal improvising from the band, what serves the song and, you know, done and dusted. So it's very nice to hear your, yeah, your, your sort of side-by-side comping of earlier versions of certainly father and this. And I, I will say part of my social media rollout, sorry to put my strategy hat on, um, <laughs> is that I dug out all these old demos of all of these tunes, maybe bar Nowhere Girl. Nowhere Girl is so old that I don't have, I can't find a time where I was sort of putting on my voice notes on my phone and recording it in any way. And it's quite interesting to hear early iterations, me on my Yamaha keyboard, but not just that, listening to my voice. I mean, Oh, there's a lot of an, a, a sort of if I have not no issues with an American accent, but I'm clearly not American. So there's a very big fake American accent on a lot of the stuff. And it it's very it sounds very over enunciated. It sounds very laborious. So I can send you early demo versions of Father <laughs> and that, that'll really make the hair on your arms stand up. But I am actually I, I am actually sharing these on on uh, Instagram and maybe, I don't know, Twitter or Facebook, wherever it's appropriate, uh, I've comped the two together so that you hear the earliest version, the earliest demo version go into the recorded version. And it's very interesting. It's not always comfortable to listen to, but it's certainly good for a laugh and a cry. (laughs) Well, let me talk about another moment that stopped me in my tracks on this record. I'm a huge Billy Bragg fan. Billy Bragg has this, I mean truly devastating version of Heart Like a Wheel. That was just the first time I ever heard that song. And I remember the first time I heard the Billy Bragg version. I mean, I 
you know, it's one of those times when you're like, okay, this is my life up to this moment. And now this is my life after this moment. And I think it's one of the most gorgeous songs ever. I think it's an incredibly difficult song to perform because it only works if it is tender and honest and exposed. So you do that here. Uh, when I heard, I didn't know the song was on the album. And I have a real strong emotional connection to this song. And I have a really demanding need for it to work, for this song to work when it gets performed. And it's so goddamn beautiful on this album. And it's only love. And it's only love. And it's only love. And it's only I don't know. I don't have anything smart. This is an awful interview, but all all I can say is I love this record. Over and over again, this record just it just really hit me. I I just think you've you've outdone yourself. But I'm curious about why you chose Heart Like a Wheel. I love that you love that song, and I'm so glad that you feel we stuck the landing because I'm aware whenever I'm doing a cover that people might have a very strong relationship with a tune and if you're not giving them something new or if you're not building upon their already emotional attachment to a song then what are we all doing here um i chose to cover that tune i'm trying to think if it did i do end up having these sort of follow-on things so there's the whole beatles thing right there's a beatles tune on the first album a second album and now we've done a kind of like Blackbird homage, um, but there's no Beatles cover. On my on my debut album on Freedom Flight, I did do a rendition of Swimming Song, which is a Loudon Wainwright song. But the version that introduced me to that tune was not Loudon's version. It was Kate and Anna McGarrigle's version. And again, that comes via my dad being a huge fan of folk singers and singer-songwriters. And he introduced me to Kate and Anna. So that harkens back to 2011, 2012. And I think partly because I now live in Toronto, Canada, I thought it would be nice to, if we're going to do a cover, let's do it. There are so many great Canadian singer-songwriters. I mean, there's Joni, there's Leonard Cohen. uh, The list goes on and on. I thought, well, it would be nice to do something by a Canadian singer-songwriter. And then I knew that I wanted to do a duet with Lila, so I was kind of thinking what would be a nice vehicle for the two of us to sing together. And in many ways, that kind of is an obvious choice because you have Kate and Anna singing in harmony throughout you know, their recording careers. 
And so we pay homage to them, even though Lila and I are not sisters. And when I dug into that song, because actually, Jason, I knew it because I knew the album that it was on, but I'd never sort of stopped and read the lyrics and thought about how some of the lyrics, if they appeared in a different position in the song or were repeated and repeated and repeated, that they actually came to have either ambiguous meaning or more meaning, which is an incredibly powerful thing, which then leads into what you said about it being such an amazingly written song. It's it's completely like, ugh, I said I wouldn't use the word like, but it is, it's not like brilliant. It is brilliant. <laughs> so that's how we came to record it. And I think part of the reason why you feel it stuck the landing and other people who are big fans of that tune and of Kate and Anna McGarrigal have said it works for them. That is really in large part thanks to Oded. So it is my arrangement, but the tempo of that song is Oded. And it's what he would call a mature tempo, meaning it's slow. It's not snail pace, but it's at a, it hits at a, at a tempo actually that is very hard to maintain because the tendency is to go faster or to slow down maybe until you stop. So it's a very interesting thing. And it's a very kind of moderato walking pace type motif that is threaded throughout that could, could make or break it really. Um, I'm just, yeah, I'm just really, really delighted that it, it works for you. This interview is a clear example. And every once in a while, these interviews happen on the jazz session. This interview is a clear example. It's possible that if we redid this interview six months or a year from now, or if we'd done it a year previously, this might've been a very different interview. I don't know. But what I do know is that sometimes there's a really good marriage of an album and kind of what the listener needs music to do. And this was that for me. I think that's why like this interview has kind of been more me just emotionally reacting to the record. But I mean, isn't that what music is for? I, I don't know. So I well, feel I, like I'm kind of apologizing for not being like as rigorous an interviewer as I might be and just kind of like having mostly just fanboyed out for this entire time. But it's a great, great record. And I really love it. Jason, I so appreciate it. I mean, I don't need you saying, did I order the code red, Colonel Jessup? You know, <laughs> I'm very happy not to be grilled. Oh, my also, God. We will do all the dialogue from that movie right now, start to finish. I will, I'm there with you 100%. <laughs> um, but, um, but, and not, I am, on, on a personal note, I'm obviously incredibly just touched and so thrilled that you're having this reaction. But I also think you have you have nothing to apologize for because this, uh, not to sound calculative, but the opportunity to come on to this podcast, the original Jazz Interview podcast, and to talk to an interviewer of your caliber and of your skill, I mean, that's just very, it's invaluable for me. And maybe people will listen to this and be like, I mean, is it as good as he says it is? I guess I'll have to go and listen to it. And Fair for enough. that, I would say thank you, Jason. Mission accomplished. So I'm just delighted. And I, yeah, and I love talking about it, but I also love getting this kind of, what did it do for you, if anything? So 
just thank you. My guest is Nikki Schreira. She was the host of this show, and you can find all of those episodes at thejazzsession.com. It's easy to identify them. Uh, although I am colorblind, I do believe they're the red episodes. Um, I think of uh, Nikki's uh, era of the show in my brain. I think of it as the red era. Uh, Nikki's new album is called Nowhere Girl. If I have not made it clear, let me make it clear right at the end. <laughs> it is absolutely brilliant. And uh, the moment you uh, press stop on this episode of the podcast, you should press play on the record. Uh, it's it's such a pleasure to have you on. Uh, you know, y- you are part uh, of the Jazz Session family. You always will be. You're always welcome here, but it's also great that uh, to get to hear a record like this and uh, and to talk to you about it. So yeah, thanks thanks for being here and congratulations on a, a great album. Jason, thank you so much for having me back on the Jazz Session, especially after I helmed a season and could have royally beeped it up and you can just refer to me from now on as the mark rothko of the jazz session (laughs) i'll be responsible for the red period but really thank you and to anyone who has tuned in to listen uh thanks for lending us your ears and now go and put them on the astonishing archive of this podcast Thanks to my guest, Nikki Shrira. Thanks also to the members who support this show and to the Respect Sextet at respectsextet.com for the theme music and Sarah Walter for the logo. You can message me for more info about Sarah. Chuck Ingersoll is the voice of the intro. You can hire him at hearchucknow.com. Follow the Jazz Session on Twitter at jazzsesh, J-A-Z-Z-S-E-S-H, and on Instagram and TikTok at the Jazz Session. Take a second right now to rate and review The Jazz Session wherever you listen. It greatly improves my ability to reach new folks. If you'd like to keep up to date on my podcast, poetry, and more, you can subscribe to my newsletter. Just go to thejazzsession.com and click on the newsletter link. If you'd like to hire me to write an artist bio or a press release or liner notes for your next record, go to cranewrites.com, crane, W-R-I-T-E-S.com. You'll find samples and contact info there. If you value what you just heard, please become a member for $5 a month at thejazzsession.com slash join, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.